Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. We're in the second week of a series called Sacred Remembrances, and last week I started with a story about my childhood when I was like 11, 12, 13 years old, and I want to return to that time to start the sermon this morning with another story like that. Um, You know, in the last couple of months, I've been trying to express myself to my dad, and if you don't, many of you may not know, but my dad recently passed away, and so we knew that he was going to be passing away, and so I've been trying to communicate some things to him, what he means to me, and um, one of the things that I tried to get him to understand was I just wanted to thank him for the idyllic childhood that I had growing up, because not everybody gets that. Some of you could tell your story this morning, and it wasn't great. Some of you were abused. Some of you were abandoned. Some of you grew up with one parent. Some of you grew up with no parents. I mean, it was just, some of you have grown up really hard. That's not been my experience. I grew up with two parents who loved me very much, who provided for me, gave me a wonderful childhood in a wonderful city and a great neighborhood, and um, it was just an idyllic uh, upbringing, and I, I, I tried to express that to my dad, but I want to tell you about a time this is the early 70s, okay, I'm 11, 12, 13-year-old prepubescent boy, and it was just a great time to be alive as a kid. We had the best of everything back then. We had the best music. We did. We had the best music. We had the Eagles, for crying out loud, and, and Steely Dan, and Tom Petty. Come on. Just the best stuff that we call classic rock now, we just called rock and roll, and it was awesome then, and it's awesome now. We had the best bikes. How about a good banana seat and a sissy bar, anybody? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Streamers on the hand. Oh, we had all that stuff. Um, and we had, um, you know, we had great television shows. Gilligan's Island and the Brady Bunch, and I'd come home and the Flintstones would be on. Just great, great television. If, if you were lucky, your parents let you stay up late on a Friday night till midnight to watch Midnight Special. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, there's a couple of you. The rest of you grew up in houses with prudes running it. They didn't let you stay up and watch Midnight Special. And then we had great candy. I mean, we've always had the greats, right? We've always had Snickers bars and Three Musketeers and, and, and Baby Ruth. And, you know, you, now we've got Twix bars, and, and there's some good candy. There's Almond Joy, Mounds, and those kind of things. It's, it's kind of cool, but... Back then, we had really cool candy and stuff that you don't, I don't, at least I don't see it today on any candy shelf. And believe me, I check now and then. They used to have pixie sticks. You remember pixie sticks? You'd have the straw and you'd pour that powder in your mouth. You remember, now some of you are going to hear me talk about these and you are going to think, what in the world is he talking about? But some of you, I'm about to take you back to a childhood memory and it's going to be so sweet. You remember those little wax, like Coke bottle things? Yes. Who remembers? Who has no idea what I'm talking about? Oh, no, everybody knows. Okay. And we'd we'd bite the top off of it, and even your teeth would seal it back together. You remember that? It never was. And it had the liquid stuff inside. Don't really know what it was, but it didn't bother us. We were slamming them, right? You remember the... And then we would eat the bottle. Remember that wax bottle? We'd put that in our mouth and chew on it for a half an hour, and then we'd get the nerve to swallow that thing. You remember the red lips, yeah, with the little whistle in them? 
Or the, we had, we also, they also had like uh, Dracula fangs too. And now those took like 45 minutes to chew. It was, those were big. They were pretty, you know, you had to swallow those. You couldn't swallow them whole. God knows what we did to our intestines, you know? I grew up with a kid named Teddy Funk. Teddy Funk was my best friend. And Teddy had three brothers and I had three siblings and we were all about the same age. And so our families, um, Mr. Funk was an attorney. He was, they were very well to do and um, they, they were very, very good to my parents growing up. They, they were very good to me. They treated me like a son. I spent just about every Friday night in the Funk home. I, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I, would, I was allowed to go get my own cup. My own, you know, Miss Funk bought Sprites for me, um, specifically for me, because nobody else drank them, but I drank Sprite, and she would make sure I had some in the house. And I just, they were a great family to us. And so Teddy and I were inseparable when we were that age. And, and one night, Mr. Funk did not want us, it was Halloween, he did not want us to go out trick-or-treating for Halloween. I think really what it was, was he didn't want to hand out candy because all the other boys were going to be gone and it was going to fall to him and he wasn't doing it. He didn't want his house to get soaked. So you remember that? Yeah. And so he said, come here, boys, come into the kitchen. So we went into the kitchen. He had this real deep voice. He said, um, what, what, what would you say if I asked you to stay home tonight and not go out trick-or-treating? And he said, I'll sweeten the deal. I'll take you up to Stop and Go, and I'll buy you candy. Well, Stop and Go was at the top of this. We lived down in this like little valley. The subdivision was down in this little valley. And at the top of the hill was a place called Stop and Go. It was like a convenience store. And so we said, yeah, we'll do that. So we walk in, and this particular little convenience store had um, not full-size shopping carts, about the half the size of a shopping cart you'd get at Kroger or something like that. But, was, I mean, still, it was a shopping cart. And so he, he hands us each, he gives us, he says, get, get a shopping cart. And we're like, okay, <laughs> all right. So we go down the candy aisle. And he said, Brett, get, get what you want. So I took a, I got a candy bar, put it in the cart. And I thought I was done. He said, get another one. I got another one. And Teddy didn't get one of those. And he looked at Teddy, he said, Teddy, put one of those in your cart. And he said, Dad, I don't like those. He said, put it in the cart. You know, like, <laughs> wasn't playing favorites. We're all going to walk out of there with the same thing. So if I got one, Teddy got one. If Teddy got one, I got one. Pretty soon we figured out we can have whatever we want. So now we're just, you know, we're filling the cart, right? We literally filled our carts with candy. I have no idea what he paid for all that candy that night, but we walked out with two bags each in our hands full of candy. We went home, we handed out candy to the kids all night, ate our candy, got sicker than dogs. It was, it was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. Now, I will never forget that night as long as I live, and I love telling that story, but there were times, especially in the summertime, when we would want a piece of candy or want a candy bar or whatever, and we didn't have, we didn't have a, a whole lot of money, but what we liked Teddy and I, we really liked chocolas. You know what a chocola was? We call them yoo now. Chocola, you'd shake it up before you opened it, right? And so we would talk his brothers. One of his brothers had recently gotten his license, so he was always looking to drive. So it wasn't much to just go to him and say, hey, would you take us to stop and go? And we'd take him up. You usually have to wash his car or something as a favor, you know, back to pay him back or whatever. 
but we would go and we'd have just enough money to buy a, a chocola and some kind of candy bar. And I would stand in front of that candy aisle paralyzed, right? Because you've only got so much money and it's not when Mr. Funk's nowhere to be found. You only get one. What am I going to choose? And I would just, you know, it just felt like you stood there for hours trying to figure out what candy do I want? What's, what's going to be the best option for me? Now, you're, now, you know, a little 11, 12-year-old kid's getting a, a, a lesson in, in value <laughs> and, and bang for your buck and, you know, how long is it going to last and is it going to, you know, is it going to taste good enough for me to put my money down for it? I want to begin today with a verse by a very, with a quote by a very, very wise man, myself. <laughs> and I'm joking. I'm joking when I call myself a wise man. But this is a quote. This is something that I've said forever. I, I don't know. It just hit me one day. I've said this as long as I can remember. The only thing worse than no choice is a choice. You ever feel that way? Sometimes, sometimes it would be easier if they would just tell me, you're going here. Or it would be easier if they would just say, this is the only thing we have on the menu, right? You go into a place and there's like, 20 different options and you're like, I don't know what I, what I, wanna, what I wanna eat tonight. And it would just be easier if the, if the server looked at you and said, get number 10. Sometimes that would be easier for me. Choosing can sometimes paralyze us. Th this idea of choosing is a great way to start our conversation because the character we're gonna look at today is having a conversation. He's pressing and challenging his people to choose. His name is Joshua. And he's asking them to choose something far more important than a piece of candy. Joshua is asking them to choose something that will determine the future of their lives. It will set their legacy. He's asking them to put God at the center of their lives. Here's what he said. Choose for yourselves this day who you will serve. Make a decision. You need to choose. You need to do it today. He's calling them to choose between the creator God, the, the God that we serve, the God that we love, or some lesser God that were, those, they were prevalent in the time of Joshua. There were other civilizations and other communities that worshiped all kinds of things, and they, they had some options. Now, when Joshua said this, he's an old guy. He's at the end of his life. In fact, he's going to give this address, and not long after this, he's going to die. So this is in some ways his farewell address. Joshua has blasted through his 70s. He's blasted through his 80s. He's now into his 90s. And I suspect, I mean, it's not hard for me to imagine that as he gives this address, he's old, he's frail. He's standing up there and, and now it's possible that somebody's even on either side of him holding him up while he's trying to address these people. But he's still their leader. And he, he, he's looking at them and he's gonna talk to them about, there had been a time where earlier in the history of the Hebrew people, where they had been enslaved in Egypt. And under the leadership of Moses, they're rescued, they're, they, they exit Egypt. In fact, we have a whole book dedicated to that. It's called the Exodus. And then they, they go into the wilderness for 40 years. And he's, 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 you know, he's, got, he's gonna tell them about this history. They, they exit that space in the wilderness and they're finally gonna come to the land of promise. This is um, where Joshua's challenge is going to take place. They're in a place of safety. They're in a place of security. There's no longer slavery. There's no longer a desert. They're finally at home, and Joshua says, you need to make a decision, and you need to make it today. Choose for yourselves this day who you will serve. It's decision time. 
So before we jump in to see how Joshua challenges them, I would like to take a moment and maybe challenge you. Because for some of you, it's decision time. There comes a time in our life when we come to a crossroads, a a transition point where we decide maybe for the first time or we have to decide once again whether or not God belongs at the center of our life. It's decision time. And my guess is that in a crowd this size that there are some of you who are in a space right now today where you need a renewal. You need someone to reignite something for you. You need God to come along and maybe you need to be restored in some way. And I'm hoping that in the challenge that Joshua gave to the people before him, that God would do a deep and lasting work in some of you because it's quite possible that you're here today and it's decision time just like it was decision time in Joshua's day. He has gathered them, the top men of his nation, some of the best talent from the 12 tribes of Israel. And in in Joshua 24, we are given a list of the kind of men who were there and what they are told. We, We learn about leaders, about elders, officials, judges from all 12 tribes. You would have elders from Zebulon. You would have them from Judah, from Benjamin. And he's gathered them all together, and he's going to say, it's decision time. It's time for you to choose whether or not you're going to serve the one true God or whether you're going to opt for any number of these other false gods that are presented to you. The conversation unfolds in three challenges, or maybe you could call them three steps. I'll call them three steps this morning. And the first one is, You have to reflect on God's goodness. If you're going to make a decision, you got to reflect on God's goodness. A crazy thing happens. He gets all these people together, all these elders, officials, judges. He doesn't begin by challenging them. He begins with a 600-year history of the people of Israel, and he does it in 12 verses. And he doesn't do it with a a blow-by-blow account, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. He takes 12 verses, and he pinpoints areas where they have experienced the goodness of God. And we're not going to look at all of them this morning. I want to summarize, and I want to walk you through them geographically is what I want to do. He says, this is where we start. We start at the top. We, we go up above the Euphrates River, just north of the Euphrates River, and that's where our great-great-great-great-grandfather Abraham heard from God, and God said, leave your people, leave your country, leave everything that is familiar to you, go to a land that I will show you, and Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a great nation. And through you and through your family, all of the nations of the rest of the world are going to be blessed. This conversation happens up north, and then Abraham migrates to the south. There's one problem with becoming a great nation. If you're Abraham, to become a great nation, you need people, and Abraham doesn't have any people. His wife, Sarah, cannot conceive. And so that's a problem. They're trying to have children. They cannot have children. They're, They're old now, and God does this miraculous thing, and he gives him a son, son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. If you were here last week, you remember we talked about Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons that will become the 12 tribes of Israel. And when the book of Genesis closes, they have basically become a small clan of people. They're pretty sizable family. 
And that sizable family will move down to Egypt in the middle of a famine where over the course of a couple of generations, they will become enslaved under, under the Egyptian rule. The Pharaoh and the Egyptians will turn them into slaves. And, and then God sends them a leader, a man by the name of Moses. And God recruits Moses and he says, Moses, I need you to go to Pharaoh. I need you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And the point wasn't simply that the Israelites escaped Egypt. It is that they were rescued from Egypt. Big difference. They will spend a long time, 40 years in the desert, and they are approaching Canaan, the promised land. There is a group of people called the Amorites, and they come to annihilate and destroy the Israelites. Now, the Israelites are traveling north, and you have to understand, they're not an army. This isn't an army. This is these are families that are making their way to the land that God has promised. They're family. And they start getting picked off by this Amorite army. Once, you know, all of a sudden, a, 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 a grandfather and a grandmother come under attack. And then family comes under attack. Family, you know, young kids come under attack. And the Amorites are just wreaking havoc. And, and it's, it's really not a good situation. This had to be terrifying for the Hebrew people. And when the Amorites attacked them, the Lord delivered the Israelites from the Amorites. Now, I want to stop for a minute. This isn't in my notes, but I just want to say this. Later on, books later in the Bible, you're going to read about how God would, would basically sick the, the Israelite army on some of these people groups, and he says some pretty harsh things, like go in and wipe them all out. Men, women, and children, kill them all. And you hear that, and you're like, why would God say things like that? He said it because he's a just God. And these tribes, many years earlier, had done what they did to the Israelite people as they were coming into the promised land. And God said, I'm going to make sure that everybody knows that this people is my people, and I'm going to take care of them. And as I take care of them, I want them to see that they need to be coming to me. And I'm not putting up with any foolishness when it comes to my people. You better leave them alone. So we read that sometimes, and we think, man, God was so angry. No, God is just. And he's 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 sending a message that that needs to be sent well they're they're now in the promised land and their ancestors abraham isaac and jacob have been promised this land this is 12 verses spanning 600 years of history and joshua is addressing these men and he says listen god has been good to us he did this he did this he uses four expressions he, he says we he's blessed us He's rescued us, he's protected us, and he's provided for us. Why is Joshua doing this? Why would Joshua call this gathering of leaders just to give them a history lesson? Because in just a couple of verses, he's going to look at these men, and he's going to challenge them, and he's going to say how good God has been to them, and he wants them to follow God. And just a newsflash for you, and this may be the, 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 you know, worth the price of admission this morning, for you, but I'm just gonna tell you, you will not follow someone you don't trust. You won't. If you don't trust them, you're not gonna follow them. And it's possible that maybe part of your problem this morning when it comes to God is, I don't know if I can trust him. So I wanna kinda of try to deal with that for us this morning. Because if you, in your heart of hearts, you believe God is stingy. If you believe that He's holding out on you somehow, that he's not giving you his best. If through some tragedy or some circumstance or, 
or something has caused you to not believe like you once believed. I, I've done a couple of funerals this week, and one of the things that I say often at funerals is, you know, th- these, these days tempt us to disbelieve. We're tempted to, to move away from God when we get hurt, when the sting of loss comes close. We have this tendency to pull back and maybe think, well, can I trust God or not? You will not trust someone, you, you will not follow someone you don't trust. In fact, when it comes to putting God at the center of their lives, I think it's possible that step number one might have to be that you just have to have a fresh encounter with the goodness and the generosity of God. And you, you look at that and you think, Brett, that's their story. That's not my story. I mean, I get it. They were rescued from Egypt miraculously. I get it. Abraham miraculously has children. I get it. But Brett, what has God ever done for me? <laughs> Okay, well, if we're going to play the game that way, let's play the game that way. Why don't we start with the beauty of the created world that surrounds you? That every day, somehow, in some way, you can see something that God made that could bless your life. I walked out this morning. I've got my good friend Michael. One of these days, I'm going to bring Michael over here and let him preach to you. But my buddy Michael... He loves to sit on his front porch. He lives out in the country, Route 3, and he takes pictures of the sunrises and the sunsets. He loves to post those on Facebook. I don't do that. But this morning when I walked outside to walk over here, the sky in the east was beautiful. How many of you saw it? Did you see how beautiful? Pink, yellows, oranges. It was gorgeous. And I just, I reached in my pocket, I pulled out my phone, and I took some pictures. I thought, man, that is just so pretty. Yay, God. Way to go. That's awesome. He's so creative. He's so good to us. He gives us so many things on a daily basis. Daily, he's he's showing himself to us. And when I say daily, I mean every sunrise, every sandwich, every sunset, every steak. He's good to us. He is. He's really good to us. And before you even get to Jesus and what he's done for us through Jesus, the world that surrounds us, God has rigged it so that this world benefits us and provides for us. We are to absorb the goodness of God. And then, if you're a follower of Jesus, you come to the cross. The crucifixion is like this image of the self-giving nature of God. Jesus didn't just come to her earth and get himself killed. I think some people think, you know, that Jesus uh, got tracked down, that they finally caught up with him and they finally crucified him. That's not how that went down. Jesus didn't hide. He didn't hide from them. He put himself in plain sight. He went to Jerusalem knowing they were going to put him on a cross. He made himself available. He gave himself up for you and me to be crucified on a Roman cross. I just want to stop long enough in this message to be able to say to somebody that needs to hear it this morning, there is someone who loves you that much that would go to a cross for you, that thinks enough of you, that loves you that much, that, they would, they're, they're, that God would love you so much that he wouldn't even spare his own son. And I don't know what happened to you. I don't know who abandoned you or who deserted you or who abused you. But I hope that there can come a point in your journey of faith that you begin to comprehend what has been done for you. Because what has been done for you should eclipse what has been done to you. 
And I know people who can't get over what has been done to them. They can't see what God has done for them. Don't be like that. That whatever wounding happened in the past, that you should find your identity in what was done for you rather than what was done to you. Joshua gathers these leaders together, every tribe of Israel, and the first thing he does is he recounts their history, just how good God had been to them. It was important for them to hear that. It's important for you to hear that, how, how good God has been to you. Because you will not follow someone that you do not trust. Sometimes when people get deeply disappointed, deeply discouraged, they begin to suspect that God is not kind. And then uh, some Yahoo like me gets up on a stage like this and I say something like, give your life to Christ or you, know, you should uh, let Jesus be the Lord of your life. And you sit back and you say, why? Why would I do that? A fresh encounter with the goodness of God. We use the word grace at Cross Lane a lot. In fact, it's one of, our, it's one of the words in our um, core values. Grace is when you get something good that you didn't deserve. I've had a lot of grace in my life. I've had a lot of people do things for me and give things to me that, that I didn't deserve. But any conversation about God's grace is a conversation about that part of God's character that is wildly generous. Because he gives and he gives and he gives. So step one, a fresh encounter with the goodness of God. This is where Joshua started with the people. It's often where our journey needs to begin when we come to God. He's looking at their history and he says, God helped us here. He provided for us here. He's, he's rescued us here. He's met us here. And now he's going to throw down. <laughs> Joshua's got more to say. He's going to say, now you need to uh, fully embrace the goodness of God because it is decision time. Who are you going to follow? Which God will get your attention? Step two, he immediately turns their attention to recognize your competing gods. There is a museum on the campus of the uh, on, on the campus of Chicago University, or I'm sorry, University of Chicago. It's the Museum of the Oriental Institute. And if you go into that museum, you're going to encounter a little guy that looks like this. And this is the god Baal. Baal was the chief deity in Canaan, which is the land that now the Israelites have come into. And he has that upheld arm. There's probably what's missing in that is some kind of lightning bolt because um, he was the god that you credited with fertility and and the fertility of the land. He was the one that you prayed to to send the rain so that your crops would grow. And so if you were afraid that next year's harvest was not be, would not be good, maybe what you'd do is you'd get out your, your little bale god, set up a little shrine, offer some plants or some flowers or some food, and pray to the bale god in hopes that he would make it rain and he would make the, the crops grow and make the crops good. Now, it's difficult to tell from this photograph, but this, is a, this little guy is about four inches tall. So if you were going to go on a trip, you could literally, this is a pocket-sized bale, you could literally put this little guy in your backpack or in your duffel bag. And you could just take him along with you. And if you were in some situation while you were on the road and you felt like you needed to consult the God, you could pull him out and set up a little shrine and you know, say a little prayer and try and get God to come to your rescue. So I want you to keep pocket-sized bale 
in mind as we go through this talk this morning. Joshua has gathered the leaders of this nation together, these elders, these leaders, these judges, and here's what he says in in, uh, Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And don't miss what's happening here. He has gathered the leaders of the nation and he says, I need you to empty your backpacks out. I need you to empty your duffel bags and you need to decide right now which God you are going to serve. I need you to get rid of those little pocket gods that you've been carrying with you everywhere that you've wanted to go. And you say, well, Brett, where did those gods come from? Well, in in this next verse, it kind of gives it away. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates. See, that's up north where Abraham had been. And Jacob from last week, I don't know if you remember, but last week Jacob had gone up to Haran and he had spent some time, and up in Haran, he'd spent some time with his uncle. That's where he took on some wives. That's where he got 12 children, which really was the beginning of the nation of Israel. And so then they came south and you you, you can ask yourself, well, Brett, is that where? So is, is that where the, the, the Baal God would have come from when they came from the north up beyond the Euphrates River? And I think that the answer is probably yes. I think those little pocket gods were probably still around. Likely these leaders who have gathered around Joshua to listen to him speak probably could have laid hands on some pocket gods that they had on their person. Joshua 24, 14, throw away your, the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. See, they'd been slaves in Egypt for generations, and then the plagues of Egypt, and you have the exodus out of Egypt, the Red Sea crossing. And so you have these people that are getting ready to leave this country forever, and they're packing food, and they're packing clothes, and it's probably likely that they also reached over and grabbed their little pocket god and shoved that up in the duffel bag. We've got to make sure that goes with us. So I think we've We've grown up and we've just come to believe that they've always believed in God. No, they, they had all kinds of gods around them and there was a struggle for this people all the time to stay true to the one true God. And once in a while they would reach out and they would grab some little pocket God and they would pay homage to it as well. And now Joshua says, it's decision time. Are you gonna serve our one singular creator God who's been so good to us, has blessed us, has rescued us, provided for us, protected us? Here's a challenge. You need to reach in your duffel bag and take that pocket God out and get rid of it. And then Joshua takes the conversation in a direction that is at least a surprise to me. Maybe it is to you as well. He says, but if you don't want to follow the Lord, then pick one. Verse 15, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. See, there are a lot of options. Just pick one. Do it now. Declare yourself. It's decision time. He throws out some suggestions in the end of the verse. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but will you please make up your mind? If you you don't want to serve the Lord who's called us, protected us, provided for us, that's fine. Pick another one. And then he says, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. You do what you want. But you need to understand that me and my household, we're going to serve the one true God. Now, I think it's possible 
that I'm speaking to at least a few people in here this morning who probably grew up with that verse of Scripture on a plaque on the wall somewhere. Did I just describe you? I don't doubt that there's somebody in the room right now that has this plaque on the wall of their house right now. And if you do, I salute you. I think that's a great place for it to be. I think that's a good verse of Scripture to be reminded of. It is a declaration of a life decision. It is the declaration of a direction that you will take yourself. Joshua has just gathered these, these high-powered guys around, and he says, you need to recognize your competing gods, and you need to empty out your duffel bags, and you need to get rid of them. Now, in some ways for us, it's different for us. And in some ways, it's the same. I mean, you know, we don't, we're not carrying around a little, I doubt any of you have a little pocket God that when you get home today, you're going to go into the corner of your house and set it in the corner and build a little shrine and offer some fruits and vegetables and, you know, pray that your kids have a great day at school or that, you know, the crops grow or, or whatever. I doubt that's going on for you, but we do have modern day idolatry. Some substitute God in our life. And I think that it's best to just assume that once in a while we have some competing God that comes into our life that needs to be evicted from time to time. Something, something or someone that needs to be dethroned. An idol might be anything that we look at and say, you know what, if I had that, I would be valuable. If I had that, I would be somebody. If I had that, I would feel safe and secure. If I had that, I would really be living the life that's worth living. And that could be anything. It could be salary level. It could be savings level. It could be a person, a him or a her. It could be recognition or notoriety or success or success or achievement there are dozens and dozens of substitute gods that inadvertently over time we just start to believe in and we say if i ever arrive there you know then i would be whole if i ever got that then i would be somebody if i ever got that then i would have value there could be dozens on the list but this morning i just want to start with the usual suspects, and I'm going to give you these, and we're going to talk about them for just a minute, and then we're going to be done. The four usual suspects are achievement, financial stability, approval, and career success. You hear that, and you're like, Brett, achievement? I mean, what's wrong with achievement? And, and financial stability as opposed to what, Brett? Do you want us to be poor? And approval? Is it a bad thing that we get approved by other people? And Brett, career success, don't you want us to go to work and, and do well and excel and do the best we can for Jesus? Isn't that what you want? Aren't these good things? And here's what you need to understand. An idol often surfaces in our life because we took a good thing and we made it an ultimate thing. That's how it starts. An idol surfaces in our life when we take a good thing and we make it God. And it happens subtly. And sometimes it happens without you knowing it. And sometimes you look up and it's like, oh my goodness, this thing is in my life and it's really, really important to me. These things can be good, but they can also be very unreliable gods. Let's think about achievement for a minute. Think about a high school football player. He's a freshman. He's on the freshman team and he's, you can tell he's going to be pretty good. 
And, and the next thing you know, he's starting as a sophomore, and then his junior year, he's got all these letters coming in. And by his senior year, he can basically pick whatever school he wants to go to. Every D1 school in the country has offered him a scholarship, and he chooses one of the Power Five Power Conference schools, and he goes there. He shows up, and he instantly uh, distinguishes himself. He's starting as a freshman. He's, he's really good. He's got promise, you can tell. This guy's going to be pretty awesome. By the time he's a junior, he's so good, he doesn't have to come back for his senior year. He's going to be able to skip his senior year and go straight into the draft, and they make him a high draft choice. He's a first-round draft pick. And they bring him in, and he's in the NFL, and he, he's making his way. And he's got the money, he's got the fame, he's got the success. He has made it. Ask you a question this morning. Do you have any idea what is the average career span of an NFL athlete? Do you have any idea? Three years and three months. Except for Tom Brady. They threw him out of that whole thing. Because he's going to be playing when he's 60. You say, Brett, what does that mean? It means that you're drafted at 23 and at 26, 27, you're out of the league. And then what? Now my identity is gone. Now everything that made me who I thought I was, this big, strong guy with all this money and all this fame and all these people wanting my autograph and, and the lights and, and, and you know, the, the attention on me and you know, replays and, and, and interviews and all that stuff. And then you're not any of that anymore and you have an identity crisis where once again you have to figure out what is going to be at the center of your life. Because achievement is fleeting. You're not maybe a professional football player, but are you hinging your identity on your achievement at work or achievement in life? Maybe for you it's financial stability. Money is not doing it for us anymore. Welcome to the wealth of America. The income, the wealth of American families, the luxury in which we live has skyrocketed since 1950, and that's adjusting for inflation. We are much, much better off than we were in the 50s, and, you know, life, you know, people talk about the 50s with great remembrance, right? Like, it's just, what a wonderful time. The size of our homes, the size of our incomes, adjusted for inflation, has rocketed since the 1950s, but not only has our income rocketed, so has depression, alcohol and drug abuse, divorce, suicide. Money isn't the answer. Work hard, invest well, save your money, just don't make money your God. Approval. A little 14-year-old girl gets on her phone and posts a picture. And then she sits for the next three or four hours watching the picture and watching the post, hoping that her other friends will come along and like it. It is a dangerous thing for a 14-year-old girl to tie her self-worth to what other 14-year-old girls think about her. Let me say this. It's a dangerous thing for 44-year-old girls to tie their self-worth to what other people think about her. We post these pictures and then we, we think to ourselves, please like my picture, please like my picture. But in our heart of hearts, what we're thinking is, please like me. Please like me. 
Approval is an unreliable God. Career success, one of the challenges for us is to bring excellence to whatever field it is that we're working in, but to not let the career title become a substitute God for us. These are unreliable gods. They can be good on some level, but it's easy to allow those things that are good to rise up in us and become ultimate and to become God. And Joshua does this crazy thing. He looks at this group of leaders and he says, if serving the Lord is undesirable for you, okay, but choose today who it is that you're going to serve. There's just one point in our lives where we need to come to the recognition of the competition and realize the substitute God we have allowed to rule in our life. And there just comes a point where you have to say, health is good, it's not God. Wealth is good, but it's not God. Position, money, career, those are good things, but they are not God and they make unreliable gods. Joshua is gathering this group and he will die shortly after he gives this address. And he deeply desires for these men and women to commit themselves anew to the God of Scripture. And then we come to step three. This is where we'll close. Renew your commitment. It's decision time. He's given this history of God's goodness. Then he challenges them to pick a God. And this is how the people respond. Joshua 24. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt and from the land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said, me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. And they said, hey, put us in that camp as well. We're going to serve the Lord as well. And then Joshua said, well, before you do that, there's just one more thing that needs to happen. We read this in verse 23. Now then throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And I think they had these little pocket gods with them. I think some of them had little pocket gods. And the people responded, We will serve the Lord our God and obey him. Then he took a large stone, he set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, This stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. It's called a standing stone or a a stone of remembrance. Sometimes it's called a stone of witness. And in Israel, these would be significant and they would set these up every now and then. you, you, you You might have a father walking with his son one day and he walks by an upright stone like that and he says, Daddy, what is that? And he says, well, that's a that's a remembrance stone. That's that, re- that symbolizes when our people decided, made this decision or made this commitment. And, you know, when they saw the one from this particular story, they would have said, that's the stone when we raised it up and we recommitted ourselves to following the Lord. And I just wonder if you have that. I wonder if you have stones of remembrance, a place to to mark your spiritual movement. I have those in my life. I'll explain what I'm talking about. I could take you even to this day, it still exists, 
In Kentucky, there's a place where there's a church camp and there's a, there's a campfire. And I could take you to the ring where I used to sit around that campfire and my, my youth pastor used to speak to us and call us to something higher. And it was there that I made these commitments that I wanted to be a fervent follower of Jesus. And the seeds were sown in the calling of ministry where I would basically say, I'm going to dedicate my life to God and I'm going to just give him all of it and I'm, going to, I'm just going to dedicate everything. I'm just going to live for him and serve him. I could take you to the fire ring where some of that happened. I, the place where my church was is gone. The church is, the building has been destroyed. There's a strip mall there now. The place where I was baptized, you can get French fries. But I could take you to almost the exact spot where I used to sit in Doug's office and he would teach us. Building us up. I could, I could take you and almost take you to the exact spot where I used to sit with my mother and listen to LD talk to me, teach me about Jesus. Stones of remembrance. Two weeks ago, I had the great opportunity to do my dad's funeral and to be assisted by my pastor, LD Campbell. He's a stone of witness. For me. See, the things I teach you, he taught me. The way I am as a pastor, he taught me. We've exchanged some emails over the last week. He sent me a note, told me I did a good job. Precious to me. I sent him a note back and said, you're like a father to me. He said, you're one of my boys. You're one of my sons. He never had a son. He's got several of us in ministry. He's a stone of witness. I see a picture like this, and I'm reminded of my calling. I'm reminded who I serve. I'm reminded how important it is. I see him, and I think about faithful service over many years. And I want to be like that. What is it for you? What are your stones of remembrance? What are your stones of witness? And is God calling you back today to say, hey, you made a commitment to me once. Come back. Come back. Get rid of your pocket gods. Get rid of those things that you have with you that have risen up to become some inferior God in your life. Come back. Choose this day who you will serve. I hope you'll do that. I want to pray for you before we go out this morning. Father, we are a blessed, blessed, blessed people. I, you know, I talked about Tracy to start this whole thing off and just what kind of shape this church is in. And it's, you're ultimately responsible for all of that because you have provided everything that we have needed. There's not ever been a time that we needed something you didn't give it to us. And you've given us every resource necessary to do the things you've called us to do. And so, Father, this morning, I just want to pray for these people who have listened to this message, and no doubt, somebody walked in here this morning, and their faith was kind of wavering, a little weak. They weren't really sure. They didn't have any direction. And I pray, Lord, 
That is, Joshua has talked to the people around him that they've heard something for them. That as they leave here, they have some stones of remembrance, a calling back to you, where they they put their foot down and said, I'm going to follow the Lord. I've gotten away from that. I've let some other things creep in. I'm going to drop my pocket gods, and I'm going to follow the one true God. And I pray, Father, that you would walk with them, draw them close, give them strength, give them a resolve that they've never had before, to be a witness for you in a world that needs it now more than ever. In this space, with these friends, we commit ourselves to you. We pray these things in the precious, holy name of Jesus and all God's people said.